Um, even though we've been diligently studying this book for a couple months now, uh, we haven't seen the actual person of Samuel in over a month. Uh, the last three weeks we've been focused on a block of material in this book in which Samuel doesn't appear, in which the central character is not a person, but as we said, the heart itself. The art, action in those chapters 4 through 7 circulating around the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And we have this series of the Ark moving places. Israel taking the Ark from Shiloh to use militarily against the Philistines. The Philistines taking the Ark from Israel as a sign of their decimation and uh, the Philistia's victory over God. And then the ark took itself uh, back to the land of Israel. And last week we ended with the verse, uh, with verse two, which gave us our final mention of the ark in First Samuel. So the ark has been center stage for the last three chapters, and now the ark is going to uh, disappear. We don't see it again until we would get to the book of Second Samuel, and David uh, decides to bring it to Jerusalem. Uh, last week we ended with actually verse 2 of chapter um, 7, and today uh, we're going to pick up with uh, verse 2 of chapter 7 and read to the end of the chapter. Verse 2, uh, we'll talk about this a little bit of a transition verse here. So, 1 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shem and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Almighty God, what a privilege it is for us to pray to you uh, as we see in the 
this chapter the power of prayer. Prayer calling out to you out of the true spirit of repentance and prayer coming out of the belief that you, Lord God, will do what you have promised. And so we ask this morning that you would be faithful to your promises to us, that where two or three were gathered in your name, you would be there present also. So we ask for the powerful presence of your spirit that you would instruct not just our minds, but you would write your word on our very hearts, that we may know it, that we may understand it, that we may live by it and do it. Uh, give us wisdom uh, this coming hour, and give us uh, increased hope and trust in the Lord, our mighty God. In his name we pray. Amen. chapter 7, and um, they are focusing on the final mention of the ark that was there while at period during. But this uh, verse, also, we're going to start with verse 2, because this also turns our attention to the subject of chapter 2, which is the religious condition of Israel and Samuel's political and spiritual leadership of the people. Now at the end of verse 2, it says that all Israel lamented after the Lord. What does that mean? What does it mean that Israel, all Israel, lamented after the Lord? And maybe one place to start is to think, what is a lament? Well, obviously it must have been some kind of a, a sign of repentance because when the expert says, if you will return to the Lord for your heart. So it doesn't necessarily mean maybe that they were truly repentant, but some kind of a manifestation of repentance. So some kind of cry, sorrowful crying out after God, uh, maybe indicating a spiritual state within Israel that, uh, that they're moving toward repentance. Well, it doesn't say that they were repent necessarily. It's just saying that they that they were men, which perhaps just says that they recognize that they have a problem. They have a, a big problem. Uh, yeah, that um, and we can sort of think about what what that problem is. So they're lamenting after God. Well, they, clearly there was there was the whole issue of idolatry. That's that's why they were in the arts. Yeah, so we're, we're about to see them, um, again, to go to Mark's point about maybe this is indicating uh, a move toward repentance or an awakening to their sin that will uh, bring forth repentance. We're going to see them putting away those things, those idols in the there, there seems to be a, a level of confusion in the minds of Israel as to what they're supposed to do. They've just gone through this experience where they brought the ark out with the thought that they would win, and then the ark gets taken. And, and then following that, the, the judgment that they expected to come on the Philistines because of the ark being in their presence while they went to battle, that judgment follows after the Philistines take the ark. Then they get the ark back, and now the ark, which was their friend before, is, is, seems to be striking them. And it's, it's this, this whole confused nature of, of their thinking seems to indicate that you know, they don't have, and the obvious reference to idolatry indicates that they, they don't have the relationship with God that would cause them to have right thoughts about what just happened. So they're mourning right now because they, they, they're, they're lamenting because they're kind of, what do we do, I think? I think they just... They don't know what to do next. Yeah, if we think about the last time we'd seen the Israelites, um, uh, you know, they were crying out because of the glory of God had departed Israel. They're naming children Ichabod. Uh, they think God's gone. Uh, and the ark's gone, God's gone. And then as you say, when it comes back, it doesn't real, seem to be real friendly. Um, <laughs> So I think confusion is a good word, and the, the loss of relationships there. Um, 
You know, if we, we think of the extent of, um, you know, I, I mentioned this way back when we uh, looked at chapter 4, how the loss of the ark wasn't just damaging to Israel, it's damaging to God's international reputation. I mean, here, you know, this God who had led these people out of Egypt, you know, he just suffered an enormous defeat and was, you know, the God, the ark, was captured. So, does this God have power anymore? I, I think it shows it was so bad that it even took uh, 20 years before Samuel thought they were ready to be brought back. Yeah, and uh, that actually, Bill, raised a question for me. Um, what's Samuel been doing for 20 years? <laughs> um, and, you know, I was, I was actually going to ask that question out loud, but then I realized we have no explicit. Uh, so, you know, my first thought was maybe this is, because the last time we saw him uh, was at, in first, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. And that, it's almost like, you know, when it kicks back up, now we're getting what that word is. I'm almost wondering if this is what he's been saying all along. And now, but it's taken 20 years for the people to start listening to him. Um, I think quite often we're told to wait on the Lord. So I'm that was all. Yeah, maybe he was patiently waiting. Maybe he was proclaiming this word all along, and it took 20 years. Uh, you know, it, it seems to be a, a coincidence here of, of Samuel's message and uh, whatever lamenting after the Lord means that Israel sort of prepared now in a certain way to receive this message that they have it before. Well, I'm just wondering perhaps there is actually some time over that between the first two of what we're seeing and the first Somewhere in that 20 years. Yeah, yeah maybe so. Maybe we've got some overlap. Because, um, you know, we sort of have the people, I mean, it's going to take time for the people to uh, respond in the way they do before they have this sort of specific moment of, of national repentance. But it doesn't really say how he was suddenly made judge. I mean, we see that in the judges, but we don't see it here. Yeah, it's. It's almost de facto that he, he being the one who has the word of the Lord, and he starts judging. Um, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second, because there's an interesting combination there of the religious and the political. Um, so, you know, as I was trying to sketch this out, um, so these are questions that came up about what the lament could be. Do they think God's dead and gone, and therefore you have a funeral? Um, with the this, this goes back to uh, Chris's with the ark's capture and uh, the departure of God's glory from Israel has God's relationship with the people been damaged to the extent that they lament uh, his demise? Is it more this kind of the people themselves, the state of their heart, their lamenting their loss of relationship with the Lord? The ark's come back, but it's killed people since its return. Or no longer sure uh, God is on their side. Uh, it says, verse 2, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lived in the Okay, so the ark is back. So the ark's back, and we have 20 years of lamentation. Yeah, it's been back for it seems to uh, it seems to indicate that uh, a long time passed, some twenty years. Uh, what strikes me about this is that when the ark came back, they were so happy, big deal that it came back, and so now there's this tremendous quiet interval that we don't know about. They think so they're okay. <laughs> we we don't know. I mean, well, it's the people of that town. Uh, I mean. It, to sort of think who rejoiced, the people immediately on the scene. So does everyone know the ark's back? Right, and 20 years is a generation. Yeah. So you have a whole new group of people now, and you wonder, you know, 
in what Samuel is going to say later, you know, put away your bales and Ashtaroth and everything. You know, did they begin to worship the little golden things that the Philistines sent along with the ark, the offerings? It doesn't say whatever happened. What was the disposition of those? It doesn't say they melted them down. They they used them for the things they could have just turned into objects of worship somehow. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. Here though, uh, the two we've got two deities specifically mentioned, yeah, Baal yeah. and Ashtaroth, yeah. which doesn't seem to be the same golden things that the Philistines sent. Back. Something happened after the great rejoicing. Yeah, and maybe this is a sign. I mean, these things had been there previously. Uh, I mean, again, this is you know we're not told when the Baals and Ashtaroth suddenly became popular among the Israelites. They could have been there before the ark. Yeah, they were in all of the surrounding. Yeah, these are those gods of the surrounding nations, and so over time, um, these things have blended with the Israel's religion. I think it also could put credibility to your gun box theory because when the first came back, they were probably so excited. But without a heart change from them, it's not going to make a difference. I mean, yeah, the ark is back, but it's not a god in the box. You just have that physical thing, everything's now going to be okay. Yeah, and here we see God acting, um, you know, the ark disappears. Um, I, I, I really like Christmas. Confusion, I think, is a, a great word. Um, they, I'm not sure they know what to think um, of the ark's return, of if God still loves them or not, um, what they're supposed to be doing. Now, militarily, there's sort of a peaceful period in this. Well, militarily, it seems like they're being oppressed. Because uh, when uh, Samuel gives them their address, the Lord will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So it sort of seems like... Um, you know, after that great defeat in chapter four, that they, the Philistines, the thumb of the Philistines, the hand of the Philistines, is heavy upon them. So, to, and to think back to the judges, judges. I mean, that was often the the situation in which a judge arose to deliver Israel out from the hand of um, a foreign nation. So they are uh, politically oppressed. Um, as well, and and note the response of the Philistines um, when they hear about these people gathered in Mizpah. They gathered. I mean, they're looking at that as a revolt. Um, you know, here are these people that are, you know, that we've conquered are trying to get together and maybe you know, mass their numbers against us. All right. So um, in uh, in verse 3, we finally get to hear what some of this word of the Lord uh, that Samuel had been receiving. We get to hear him addressing it to the house of Israel. If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. Direct your heart to the Lord. Serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So what things does Samuel want the people to do?
can you return to the Lord without doing the other three? Four acts or three? Or one single act? One? Why do you say one?
people just because the ark was there probably ended and, and there was some sense of stability, although the ark was still not essential to their worship. But yeah, they, said, you know, they move it to a Levitical town and, again, presumably because the only people we see uh, getting killed were the people of Beth Shemesh, so we assume that once at least Beth Shemesh, the, the death stops. I think they didn't know what to do with it. I, they weren't carrying what they were supposed to do with it. I, I, I mean, it's again, it's, it's. I don't think they're confused. <laughs> Could it also be um, a protective thing so they don't get stolen? You know, maybe they have it more under guard than in a town somewhere. It's all a high. It's in a high place. You know, it's <coughs> up on a hill. Uh, maybe they're afraid to go near it again because they think then they'll be dead. Yeah. I don't know. Or disappears for a while. Maybe it should be a growing sense of emptiness that's coming on them over the years. Yeah, and I think that feeds this lamenting after the Lord. They they feel like God's departed from them. Um, and as we get to in this chapter, you know, some of the, what we see in this chapter is so if God's reputation was built on the Exodus, in a sense, we're going to see those same Exodus signs in this passage. Uh, just one other thing on these serving the, the, the Baals and Ashtoreth. Uh, it's interesting that uh, uh, Astartes or Ashtoreth is singled out here. Um, this is a Canaanite goddess of fertility whose worship usually involves some forms of cultic prostitution. So this is, uh, we could say, religion with sex appeal. Uh, sorry, that was bad. <laughs> but uh, the situation we're, we're seeing, uh, and I really liked Eugene Peterson. Um, I came across a quote from him about this. And he said this, uh, Baal Astarte worship was a way of thinking and living that believed that human actions provide the critical elements and what happens in life that the gods can be bribed to throw their weight in our direction. So uh, if we sort of take that uh, uh, that push from from uh, Peterson and, and think about this, this is the, the religious situation that Israel is in at the moment is a human-centered, pluralistic culture. That's absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I was struck the religious culture of the ancient Near East was very much like that. It was focused on self and pluralistically open to uh, multiple religious traditions. And here in this return of Israel to God, we see Samuel calling people to an exclusive faith commitment. Um, so why is it so necessary that uh, God's people maintain an exclusive faith commitment I, I think that, the, that there's this there's been this ongoing struggle ever since the Exodus. There are different passages as as you go through Exodus where there's the call to put away the gods. I mean, you you would think that they that when they came out of Egypt that they wouldn't be bringing gods with them. The, the Trinkets and, and even probably the small household gods, but those came along with them. And there's language about that in Exodus through Deuteronomy about putting that stuff away. So there's been this constant ongoing struggle at the worship level. But then, but I think there's also a sense that, that there's the sense here that where we can take a lesson away from it, which is that when the first commandment is you will have no gods before me. It's a lot bigger than just gods. It, it stretches out to things and, and concepts about God himself where we limit who he is. We, we look at him, but we don't look at him as being as enormously transcendent as he truly is. We look at him as, as competing with other things. That's, that's just by our fallen nature. We do that. And you can't get the full sense of the 
satisfaction that only God can provide when you have this double-minded ambivalence towards things and gods and other aspects of the creation. It's the Creator who's calling us to commune with Him. And He's, he's selected a people. And it diminishes His glory every time those that He has called to commune with Him now are willing to sell for something less than Him. So it's a, it's a, what we face is that, that very challenge of settling for things that aren't God. Well, so you can I think it's in, it's in line with the, the way I view you, not just the Old Testament, but Christian living is this. Uh, especially today when we're so, we're so inclusivist, you know, and so, so, so loosely ecumenical. But if we look very carefully at the walk and move of scripture, the, 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 the emphasis is on contrast and, and, and thesis. We have lost that. So if, if we are going to get ourselves so conformed to, to how people think and to be concerned with how people view us. We, we are going to lose not just the community with God, you know, but the, the ability to reflect God's glory. Yeah, if we lose that sense of separation, uh, and again, you know, the Warping Wolf of Scripture emphasizes that God is different. God is set apart, and he calls his people to be different, to be set apart, to reflect that. Not that they cease to be human or that they're somehow superhuman, but uh, we're called to be different. And, and in our society now, that difference is uh, exemplified by saying there aren't many paths. There's one path. Uh, and, and lots of other paths that take you away from that one path. And I think all those other paths, just like those days and today, all those other paths are sort of controllable, and we use them, you know, people use them when they want and when they, but God, he makes all the rules, and he demands complete commitment and submission to him. And that's kind of scary to them, and I think it's scary to people. I mean, that you, you talk to people in a sort of evangelistic way, and it's like, okay, I'll try anything for Christianity. Because that I know, like, there are some rules and somebody else is going to control me and I don't really, that's the one thing I don't really want to do. Yeah, follow, being a follower of God means submitting to God, um, to, to check at the door um, your, your control, uh, surrender. But it's so wonderful you. after you do that. Yes, <laughs> But it's, not in, uh, you know, as uh, Chris said earlier, this is not the nature of us. Um, you know, we want to be in control. We don't want to serve God. We want God to serve us. Uh, God is a jealous God. Even the things that we love should not be placed ahead of Him. as love a family. So He presents that. We hear right from the very earliest. I want to do it myself. <laughs> and that's us. <coughs> yeah, we want to, um, you know, if, if we want beautiful days that are going to leave a fertile, we want to have some control over that. Yeah. I love how different put it. And, and it is definitely a battle of mind. Even Romans 12, 1 to 2. I feel you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. Only acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We would say that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God and what is the acceptable perfect. And that chapter goes on and tells you, bless those who persecute you. So if you do that, you are going to be persecuted. You are going to stand out because you're not conforming to the world. And it's not easy to be non-conformist. I mean, to be honest about it, I mean, it's it's hard to to be the one standing out and sort of you putting your neck out. Community, you stand out in the family. You stand out in the family. You stand out in the family. You stand out in the family.
this chapter 7 and ongoing and, and before, the whole Bible is the story of fall and repent, fall and repent, fall and repent, over and over. And even right here in, in this, you really wonder how sincere this repentance is of the people. Samuel actually sets it up in a kind of funny way when he tells them to repent. Why do you repent? Because then he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. It's like a deal. And then later, not very long later, the people say to Samuel, don't cease to cry out for the Lord God for us that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. And it's almost, you can almost imagine that the hearts of many of the people are very cynical. It's basically, I'll go to God if he gives me what I want. And what happens over and over again, we see through the rest of this book, same kind of thing happening. You know, then you have Samuel's sons are all messed up. Give us a king. You shouldn't have a king. We want one anyway. God says, okay, we'll give you a king, but things are not going to go well for you. And it's always this, this thing that you wonder how sincere the hearts are. It goes right back from, to the very beginning of Genesis, and it goes all the way through to Revelation. Of, 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 the, of, of, the, of the people of God falling away from him when they don't get what they want. But, and I would say, um, yeah, I wonder how sincere my heart is. Well, yeah, <laughs> sure. It's our story, too. So, um, human, yeah, it's the human condition. Um, you know, and, and how we greet this, I mean, I, I'd like to say, I, 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 I Verse 8 strikes me as very interesting because they're countering, I mean, they're, they're saying what Samuel had just told them. Right. Um, but it's interesting that Samuel didn't tell them, repent and turn to the Lord because that's what God wants you to do. He says, turn to the Lord and he'll deliver you from the Philistines. But he does say, if you will return to the Lord with all of your heart. He's not saying just if you go through the motions. But he's, but he's holding up the prize. That so surprised me a little bit. Because I think a lot of the people would have taken it as a cynical bargain. People need prizes. I know, I know. <laughs> Mary. We look at it So 
get that, that sense of mediation, and then we get that sense of the people are delivered by God acting on their behalf. Look how uh, in verse 7 it says, uh, uh, the Lord answered him. So verse 10, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines, threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. What does that sound like? Mary, you should answer. It's the Israelites leaving Egypt. The, if you would flip to Exodus 14.24... And you see, um, you know, the Egyptian army hot on the heels of the Israelites as they pass through the Red Sea. What happens to that Egyptian army? God throws them into confusion. The exact same word that's used here is used back um, in that account. You know, you hear uh, about God thundering great thunderings. That's Exodus language. We almost, in this, this battle, have this reenacting of God delivered, just as God delivered people from Egypt, now he's delivering people from the Philistines. And look at, you know, it's almost as if Israel is the mob uh, actors. They were routed before Israel. And then the men of Israel went out from Mizpah, pursued the Philistines, and struck them as far as Bethlehem. So it's sort of like, all right, the battle's won. Don't can go, you know, finish them all now, clean them up. Uh, Doug's uh, comments reminded me of that happens over and over again when uh, the Lord says to Solomon, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. So he's given another opportunity for Solomon Saying, you know, saying we're sinning against the Lord, well, 
that's great, but that, that doesn't do it. That doesn't solve the problem. It's the sacrifice that gives the forgiveness and wipes away the sin. And I think it's like a gospel presentation here. When I look at what happened with the, with the Philistines. Yeah, and it's the way that God has initiated it. I mean, Samuel has called the people to Mizpah. And we have this combined act of worship and uh, the threat of death. Um, you know, Philistine army bearing down on you, humbling yourself and worshiping God. Uh, and, and the death is removed you know, through this act of worship. And look how they, it's really interesting how they, in their cry to Samuel, once they hear the Philistines are coming, uh, the people said, do not cease to cry out to the Lord. So it's, you know, it's this idea, Samuel is already crying out to the Lord on behalf of the people. <laughs> you know, they see the Philistine army come and they're like, don't stop, keep going. Uh, keep, uh, keep offering up worship before the gods. And, and it, it, we get to this moment, they offer the sacrifice, and the text goes out of its way to make it clear it's at that moment that this army is pro- pro- approaching death is removed. I mean, again, it's, it's at that moment um, in, in the Passover that the death pass, passes over Israel and strikes the Egyptians through that moment of sacrifice, putting blood on the lentils. I mean, it, there's so much sort of reenacting of Exodus in here, and I say that because I'm studying Exodus in a Bible study, so uh, maybe that's why I see that. But uh, I think there's a lot of, of that sort of re, reconstituting this covenant relationship between God and his people, that he is the God who delivers them, sort of restoring this sense of order. This is not a God that Israel controls. This is a God them and who will fight for them when um, when he wills, not when let's take the ark and go fight the Philistines. Uh, I, I was thinking about this, uh, uh, I was actually driving in the car this morning, so maybe this isn't the best of thoughts. But for some reason, the uh, do you, do you remember those books, Choose Your Own Adventure? Uh, you know, read these as a kid. So you read this book and then you get to the end of the page and then you have to make a decision as the reader. It's like, do you swim across the river or do you go find a bridge? Uh, and so if you swim across the river, go to page 47. Choose to go find a bridge, go to page 36. So you flip and so You flip the page. I choose to swim across the river, turn to page 47, eaten by a crocodile. Yeah. Um, and it's almost with this return of Samuel, who's Israel, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, and the people are are struck in battle against the Philistines, and they make a decision. Do they turn to Samuel and the word of the Lord, or do they turn to something else? And they turn to using the ark in a certain military way, and that took them down this road. And it brought them to a point where we are now, um, it's, it's as if, if if you had taken out chapters 4 through 7, you could almost see the same event happening, but it wouldn't make as much sense because we wouldn't have this understanding of what the people are like. Um, it's as if we needed this arc narrative to get to the people to be at this point where they re-acknowledge that God is sovereign and they're wrong.
assuming judgeship earlier. It's at this moment, at Mizpah, that Samuel becomes a judge and would continue the successful judging of Israel. Uh, not just a political leadership, but a combination of spiritual and political leadership. That uh, the Philistines were subdued and did not enter the territory of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Satan. Uh, and that's sort of a summative com uh, comment that we saw with all the judges. And Gideon reigned for 40 years and you know, had success against the Philistines all the 40 years of his reign. We're, we're sort of being presented sample in exact, that, that exact same kind of judge language. All right, um, I, let me close this in prayer. Uh, uh,